Welcome back, having Brainiacs, to the pod. We're going to continue reading chapter 11. Um, hopefully it gets better. Oh, it annoyed me so much last night, this chapter, about that anecdote where, um, what was it? Um, Edward was like, yeah, this is a good um, uh, chant, plain chant. And then George was like, yeah, but I don't think it's a plain chant. Um, because I'm very, very smart. And then later on, he confirmed it by asking someone else. And he was like, aha, I told you so. And then he included that little win, that little, I was right. That little, I told you so in his novel. <laughs> like what? Like, is that not the pettiest thing? You actually dedicated a chapter, a good chunk of a chapter, at least of your novel to this little petty thing, like little conversation where you were right about something. (laughs) Just to try to seem clever. It's so petty. It's so, it's just, I don't know. I'm trying to think of the word. It's, It's very, it's a bad look. It's just a very bad look. Like you just seem desperate. At that point, desperate for approval, I guess. But, like, it's also, it's such ugly behavior that I can't imagine anyone approving of it. I can't imagine anyone ever giving him the reaction that he wants there about, like, oh, good on you for knowing that it wasn't a plain chant, man. That's, he must be super smart. Like, no one's doing that, man. No one's. Anyway, let's just keep reading. Bored could not enlighten him on that point. Oh, let me just go back two sentences just to get a bit of a run-up. Mr. Martin tells me that the Adest is the plain chant tune. Surely not. No, he answered. It is a Portuguese tune, and it was written about 100 years ago. But Edward spluttered, It's in my prayer book. Among the plain chants, how can it get there? Bored could not enlighten him on that point, and I suggested that he should make application to the publisher of his prayer book and get his money back. There is nobody, I said, like him. He is more wonderful than anything in literature. I prefer him to Sancho, who was untroubled with the conscience and never thought of running to the Bishop of Toledo. All the same, he is not without the shrewdness of his ancestors and got the better of Archbishop Walsh for, and for the last five years. Vincent O'Brien has been beating time and will beat it till the end of his life, and he will be succeeded by others, for Edward has by deed saved the Italian contraptunalists contrapuntalists till time everlasting from competition with modern composers. He certainly has gotten the better of Walsh and I thought of a picture gallery in Dublin with nothing in it but Botticelli and his school and myself declaring that all painting that had been done since had no no interest for me. A smile began to spread over my face for the story that was coming into my mind seemed oh so humorous like uh, I, Ireland, so what? So that I began to tell myself again the delightful story of the unrefined years that, weary of erudite music, had left the cathedral and sought instinctively modern tunes and women's voices, and as these were to be found in Westernland Row, the church was soon overflowing with a happy congregation. But in a little while the collections grew scantier, 
This time it couldn't be Palestrina, and all kinds of reasons were adduced. At last, the truth could no longer be denied. The professional Catholics of Merrigan Square had been driven out of the Westland Row by the searching smells of dirty clothes and had gone away to the university church in Stevens Green. So, if it weren't Palestrina directly, it was Palestrina indirectly, and the brows of the priests began to knit when Edward Martin's name was mentioned. Them Faldadals is well enough on the continent in Paris, where there is no faith, was the opinion of an important ecclesiastic. But we don't want them here, murmured a second ecclesiastic. All this counterpoint may make a very pretty background for Mr. Martin's prayers, but what about the poor people's? Good composer or bad composer, there is no congregation in him, said a third. There's too much congregation put in the first, but not in the third, in the kind we want. The second ecclesiastic took snuff, and the group were of opinion that steps should be taken to persuade dear Edward to make good their losses. The priest in Marlborough Street sympathised with the priests of Westland Row and told them that they were so heavily out of pocket that Mr. Martin had responsibility. Edward, no doubt, consulted the best theologians in, on the subject, and I think that they assured him that he is not responsible for indirect losses. If he were, his whole fortune would not suffice. He was, of course, very sorry of a sudden influx of poor people had caused a falling off in the collections of Westland Row, for he knew that the priests needed the money very much to pay for the new decorations, and to help them, he wrote an article in The Independent praising the new blue ceiling, which seemed, so he wrote, a worthy canopy for the soaring strains of Palestrina. Unfortunately, rubbing salt into the wound, I said, a story that will amuse Dujardin, and I and it will be great fun telling him in the shady garden of Fontainebleau how Edward, anxious to do something for his church, had succeeded in emptying two. All the way down the alleys he will wonder how Edward could have ever looked upon Palestrina's masses as religious music. <clears throat> the only music he will say in which religious emotion transpires is plain chant. Hoseman's says that the tantum ergo, or the dies irae, one or the other, reminds him of a soul being dragged out of purgatory, and it is, and it is possible that it does, but a plain chant tune arranged in eight-part counterpoint cannot remind one of anything very terrible. Dujarin knows that Palestrina was a priest, and he will say, that fact deceived your friend, just as the fact of finding the Adest Fidels among the plain chant tunes deceived him. For of course I shall tell Dujardin that story too. It is too good to be missed. He is wonderful, Dujardin. I shall cry out in one of the sinuous alleys. There never was anybody like him, and I will tell him more soul-revealing anecdotes. I will say, Dujardin, listen. One evening he contended that the great duet at the end of Siegfried reminded him of Mass by Palestrina. Dujardin will laugh, and excited by his laughter, I will try to explain to him that what Edward sees in the Palestrina took a plain chant tune and gave fragments of it to the different voices, and in his mind these became confused with the motives of the ring. You see, Dujardin, the essential always escapes him. The intention of the writer is hidden from him. I am begging to understand your friend. He has, let us suppose, a musical ear that allows him to take pleasure in the music, but a musical ear will not help him to follow Wagner's, Wagner's idea. 
how in a transport of sexual emotion, a young man and a young woman on a mountainside awaken to the beauty of the life of the world. Do Jardin's appreciations will provoke me, and I will say, Do Jardin, you shouldn't be so appreciative. If I were telling you of a play I had written, it would be delightful to watch my idea dawning upon your consciousness but i am telling you of a real man and one that shall never be able to get into literature he will answer we invent nothing we can but perceive and then exhilarated carry beyond myself i will say to jarden i will tell you something still more wonderful than the last gaff two gaff dancers coarts he admires Ibsen, but you'd never guess the reason why, because he's very like Rachin. Both of them, he says, are classical writers, and do you know how he arrived at that point? Because nobody is killed on the stage in Rachin or in Ibsen. He does not see that the intention of Rachin is to represent men and women out of time and out of space, unconditioned by environment, and that the very first principle of Ibsen's art is the relation of his characters to their environment. In many passages, he merely dramatises Darwin. There never has was anybody so interesting as dear Edward, and there never will be anybody like him in literature. I will explain why presently, but I must first tell you another anecdote. I went to see him on one night, and he told me that the theme of the play he was writing was a man who was had married a woman because he had lost faith in himself. The man did not know, however, that the woman had married him for the same reason, and the two of them were thinking. I have forgotten what they were thinking, but I remember Edward saying I should like to suggest hopelessness. I urged my many phrases, but he said, It isn't a phrase I want, but an actual thing. I was thinking of a broken anchor. That surely is a symbol of hopelessness. Yes, I said, no doubt. But how are you going to get a broken anchor into a drawing room? I don't write about drawing rooms. Well, living rooms. It isn't likely that they would buy a broken anchor and put it up by the coal scuttle. There's that against it, he answered. If you could suggest anything better, what do you think of a library in which there is nothing but unacted plays? The characters could say, when there was nothing for them to do on the stage, that they were going to the library to read and the library would have the advantage of reminding everyone of the garret in the wild duck. A very cruel answer, my friend, to Jaren will say, and I will tell him... But I can't help seeing in Edward something beyond Shakespeare or Balzac. Now, tell me, which of these anecdotes I have told you is the most humorous? How he will not answer my question, but a certain thoughtfulness will begin to settle on his face, and he will say, everything with him is accidental, and when his memory fails him, he falls into another mistake, and he amuses you because it is impossible for you to anticipate his next mistake. You know there is going to be one, there must be one, for he sees things separately rather than relatively. I'm beginning to understand your friend. You are, you are, you are doing splendidly, but you haven't told me, do Jardin, which anecdote you prefer. Stay, there is another one. Perhaps this one will help you to a still better understanding. When he brought the Heatherfield and Yeats's play The Countess, Kathleen, to Dublin for performance, a great trouble of conscience awakened suddenly in him, and a few days before the performance he went to a theologian to ask him if the Countess Kathleen were a heretical work, and if it were, would Almighty God help him responsible hold sorry, hold him responsible for the performance. But he couldn't withdraw Yeats's play without withdrawing his own, 
and it appears that he breathed a sigh of relief when a common friend referred the whole matter to two other theologians, and as these gave their consent, Edward allowed the players to go on, but Cardinal Logue intervened and wrote a letter to the papers to say that the play seemed to him unfit for Catholic years, and Edward would have withdrawn the play if the Cardinal hadn't admitted in his letter that he had judged the play by certain extracts only. He wishes to act rightly, but has little faith in himself, and what makes him so amusing is that he needs advice in aesthetics as well as in morals. We are, I said, do jardin at the roots of of consciences. And I begin to ponder the question, what would happen if Edward if we lived in a world in which aesthetics ruled. I should be where Bishop Healy is, and he would be a thin, small voice crying in the wilderness, an amusing subject of meditation from which I awoke suddenly. I wonder how Dujardin is getting on with his biblical studies. Last year he was calling into question the authorship of the Romans, a most eccentric view, and remembering how weakly I had answered him, I took the Bible from the table and began to read the epistle with a view of furnishing myself with arguments where with to confute him. My Bible opened at the ninth chapter, and I said, Why, here is the authority of the Countess Kathleen's sacrifice, which Edward's theologian deemed unethical. It will be great fun to poke Edward up with St. Paul, and on my way to Lincoln Place I thought how I might lead the conversation to the Countess Kathleen. There's some music here in the story, like just a few bars of music inserted there. A few minutes afterwards, a light appeared on the staircase and the door slowly opened. Come in, Siegfried, though you were off the key. Well, my dear friend, it is difficult matter to whistle above two trams passing simultaneously and six people jabbering around a public house to say nothing of the Jarve or two, and you perhaps dozing in your armchair, as your habit often is, you won't open to anything else except a motive from the ring, and I stumbled up the stairs in front of Edward, who followed with a candle. Wait a moment, let me go first, and I'll turn up the gas. You aren't sitting in the dark, are you? No, but I read better by candlelight, and he blew out the candles in the tin candelabrum that he had made for himself. He is the original, even in his candelabrum. No one before him had ever thought of a candelabrum in tin, and I fell to admiring his appearance more carefully than perhaps I had ever done before. So monumental did he seem, lying on the little sofa, sheltered from drafts by a screen. A shawl about his shoulders. His church warden was drawing famously, and I noticed his great square hands with strong fingers and square nails paired closely away. And he therefore, sorry, heretofore, I admired the curve of his great belly, the thickness of the thighs, the length and the breadth and the width of the foot hanging over the edge of the sofa, the apoplectic apoplectic neck falling into great rolls, rolls of flesh, the humid eyes, the skull covered with short stubby hair. I looked round the room and they seemed part of himself, the old green wallpaper on which he pinned reproductions of the Italian masters. And I longed to peep once more into the bare bedroom into which he goes to fetch bottles of Apollinaris, always original. Is there another man in this world whose income is 2000 a year and who sleeps in a bare bedroom without dressing room, a bathroom, servant in the house to brush his clothes, and who has to go to the baker's for his breakfast? 
We had been talking for some time of the Gaelic League, and from Hyde it was easy to pass to Yeats and his play. His best play is the Countess Kathleen. The Countess Kathleen is only a sketch. But what I never could understand, Edward, was why you and the Cardinal could have had any doubts as to the orthodoxy of the Countess Kathleen. What, a woman that sells her own soul in order to save the souls of others? I suppose your theologian objected. Of course he objected. He cannot have read St. Paul. What do you mean? He can't have read St. Paul, or else he is prepared to overthrow, to throw over St. Paul. Mourn me more, and mourn me more. The supernatural idealism of a man who would sell his soul to save the souls of others fills me with awe. But it wasn't a man, it was the Countess Kathleen. The women are never idealists. Not the saints? His face grew solemn at once. If you give me epistles, I will read the passage to you. It is was great fun to go to the bookshelves and read. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience is also bearing me witness in Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Edward's face grew more and more solemn, and I wondered of what he was thinking. Paul is a very different and very obscure writer, and I think the church is quite right not to encourage the reading of the epistles, especially without comments. Then you did think there is something in the passage I have read. After looking down his dignified nose for a long time, he said, Of course, the church has an explanation, all the same, that it's very odd that St. Paul should have said such a thing. Very odd. There is no doubt that I owe a great deal of my happiness to Edward. All my life he has been an exquisite entertainment, and I fell to thinking that nature was very cruel to have led me like Moses with sight of the promised land. A very story would be necessary bring, to bring Edward into literature, and it would be impossible to devise an action of which he should be a part. The sex of a woman is odious to him. A man with two thousand a year does not rob nor steal, and he is so uninterested in his fellow men that he has never an ill word to say about anybody. John Eglinton is a little thing. A.E. is a soul that few will understand, but Edward is universal, more universal than Yeats, than myself, than any of us, but for lack of a story I shall not be able to give him the immortality in literature which he seeks in sacraments. Shakespeare always took his stories from some other people. Turgenev's portrait of him would be thin, poor, and evasive, and Balzac would give us the portrait of a mere fool, and Edward is not a fool, as I understand he is a temperament without a rudder all he has to rely upon is his memory which isn't a very good one and so he tumbles from one mistake into another my god it is a terrible thing to happen to one to understand a man better than he understands himself and to be powerless to help him if it, i had been able to undo his faith i should have raised him to the level of sir horace plunkett but he resisted me and perhaps he did well for he came into the world seeing things separately rather than relatively and he had to be a catholic he is a born catholic and i remembered one of his confessions a partial confession but a confession if you have been Brought up as strictly as I have been, I don't think he ever finished the sentence. He often leaves sentences unfinished, as if he fears to think things out. The end of the sentence should have run, you would not dare to think independently. He thinks that his severe bringing up has robbed him of something, but the prisoner ends by liking his prison house. And on another occasion, he said, if it hadn't been for the church, I don't know what would have happened to me. My thoughts stopped, and when I awoke, I was thinking of Hughes. Perhaps the link between Hughes and Edward was Longria Cathedral. 
he had shown me a photograph of some saints modeled by Hughes. Hughes is always in Paris, away in Paris. I said, modeling saints for Logre Cathedral. The last time I saw him was at Walter Osborne's funeral, and Walter's death set me thinking of a woman I had lost, and little by little, all she had told me about herself floated up in my mind like something that I had read. I had never seen her father nor the Putney villa in which she had been brought up, but he had made a familiar, me familiar with both through her pleasant mode of conversation, which he was never to describe anything but just to talk about things, dropping phrases here and there, and the phrases she dropped were so well chosen that the comfort of the villa, its pompous meals and numerous servants, its gardens and greenhouses with stables and coach house just behind, there as well, known to me as the house that I am living in, better known in a way, for I see it through the eyes of the imagination, a clearer, clearer eyes than the physical eyes. It does not seem to me that anyone was ever more conscious of whence she had come and of what she had been. She seemed to be able to see herself as a child again and to describe her childhood with her brother, they were nearly the same age, in the villa and in the villa's garden. I seemed to see them always as two rather than staid children who were being constantly dressed by diligent nurses and taken out for long drives in the family carriage. They did not like these drives and used to hide in the garden, but the governess was sent to fetch them and they were brought back. Her father did not like to have the horses kept waiting, and one day, as Stella stood with him in the passage, she saw her mother come out of her bedroom beautifully dressed. Her father whispered something in his wife's ear and he followed her into the bedroom. Stella remembered how the door closed behind them and in my telling, the incident seems to lose some of its point. But in Stella's relation, it seemed to be her father and his wife before me, and so clearly that I could not help asking her what answer her father would make were she to tell him that she had a lover. A smile hovered in her grave face. She would look embarrassed, she said, and wonder why I should have told him such a thing, and then I think he would go to the greenhouse and... When he returned, he would talk to me about something quite different. I don't think that Stella ever told me about the people that came to their house, but people must have come to it. And as an example of how a very few words can convey an environment, I will quote her. I always wanted to talk about Rossetti, she said, and these seven words seem to me to tell better than any description the life of a girl living with a formal father in Putney Villa, longing for something, not knowing exactly what, and anxious to get away from home. I think she told me she was 18 or 19 and had started painting before she met Florence at the house of one of her father's friends. A somewhat sore point to this meeting was that Florence was looked upon by Stella's father as something of a bohemian. She was a painter and knew all the art classes and the fees that had to be paid and led Stella into the world of studios and models and girlfriends. She knew how to find studios and could plan out a journey abroad. Stella's imagination was captured, and even if her father had tried to offer her opposition to leaving home, he could not have prevented her, for she was an heiress. Her mother was dead and had left her a considerable income, but he did not try, and the two girls had set up a house together in Chelsea. They travelled in Italy and Spain. They had a cottage in the country. They painted pictures and exhibited their pictures in the same exhibitions. They gave dances in the studios and were attracted by this young man and other 
But Stella did not give herself to anyone because, as she admitted to me, she was afraid that a lover would interrupt the devotion which she intended to give to art. But life is forever casting itself into new shapes and forms, and no sooner had she begun to express herself in art than she met me, and I was about to go to Ireland to preach a new gospel and must have seemed a very impulsive and fantastic person to her. But were not impulsiveness and fantasy just the qualities that would appeal to her, and were not gravity and good sense the qualities that would appeal to me, determined as I was then to indulge myself in a little madness? I could not have chosen a saner companion than Stella. My instinct had led me to her, but because one man's instinct is a little more clear than another's, it does not follow that he was called reason to his aid. It must be remembered always that the art of painting is as inverterate in me as the art of writing and that I am never altogether myself when far away from the smell of oil paint. Stella could talk to one about painting and all through that wonderful summer described in Solve our talk flowed on a delightfully as delightfully as a breeze in Maytime and irresponsible flashing thoughts going by and avowals perfumed with memories. Only in her garden did conversation fail us for in her garden Stella could think only of her flowers, and it seemed an indiscretion to follow her as she went through the twilight, gathering dead blooms and freeing plants from noxious insects. But she would have had me follow her, and I think was always a little grieved that I wasn't as interested in her garden as I was in her painting, and my absent-mindedness when I followed her often vexed her, and my mistakes distressed her. You are interested, she said, only in what I say about flowers, not in the flowers themselves. She liked to hear me tell about Miss Dash, whose business is... whose business in... life is to grow carnations, because you already see her dimly, perhaps, but you still you see her in a story. Forget her and look at this Miss Schiffner. Yes, it is beautiful, but we can only admire the flowers that we notice when we are children, I answered. Dahlias, china roses, red and yellow tulips, tawny wallflowers, purple pansies are never long out of my thoughts, and all the wonderful varieties of iris, the beautiful blue satin and the cream, some shining like porcelain, even the common iris that grows about the moat. But there were carnations in your mother's garden. Yes, and I remember seeing them, being tied with bass, but... What did you say yesterday about carnations? That they were the... She laughed and would not tell me. And when the twilight stooped over the high trees and the bats flitted and the garden was silent except for when the fish leaped, I begged her to come away to the wild growths that I loved better than the flowers. But the mallow and willow weed are the only two that you recognise. How many times have I told you the difference between self-heal and tufted vetch? I like cow parsley and wild hyacinths and... You have forgotten the name. As well speak of a woman that you loved, but whose name you have forgotten. Well, if I have, I love trees better than you do, Stella. You pass under a fir, unstirred by the mystery of its branches, and I wonder at you, for I am a tree worshipper, even as my ancestors, and am moved as they were by the dizzy height of a great silver fir. You like the painted trees, and I should like to paint flowers, if I could paint there we are set forth, you and I. I have told in Solve that in Rath Farmham she found many motives for painting. The shape of the land and the spire above the struggling village appealed to me, but she was not altogether herself in these pictures. She would have liked the village away 
for man and his dwellings did not form part of her conception of a landscape. Large trees and a flight of clouds above the trees were her selection, an almost unconscious life of keen wandering or sheep seeking the shelter of a tree. Stella was a good walker, and we followed the long road leading from Rathfarnham up the hills, stopping to admire the long plain which we could see through the comely trees shooting out of the shelving hillside. If I have beguiled you into a country where there are no artists and few men of letters, you can't say that I have not shown you comely trees. And now, if you can walk two miles farther up this steep road, I will show you a lovely prospect. And I enjoyed her grave admiration of the old Queen Anne dwelling house, its rough masonry, the hew hedges, the path along the hillside leading to the Druid altar and the coastline sweeping in beautiful curves. But she did not like to hear me say that the drawing of the shore reminded her of Corro. It is a sad affectation, she said, to speak of nature, reminding one of pictures. Well, the outlines of health are beautiful, I answered, and the haze is incomparable. I should like to have spoken about a piece of sculpture, but for your sake, Stella, I refrain. She was interested in things rather than ideas, and I remember her saying to me that things interest us only because we know that they are always slipping from us. A strange thing for a woman to say to her lover. She noticed all the changes of the seasons and loved them, and taught me to love them. She brought a lamb back from Rathfarnham, a poor forlorn thing that had run bleeding so pitiful across the windy field that she had asked the shepherd where the ewe was, and he had answered that she had been killed overnight by a golf ball. The lamb will be dead before morning he added and it was the march that the donkey produced a foal poor ragged thing that did not look as if it ever could be larger than a goat but the donkey loved her foal do you know the names of those two birds flying up and down the river they look to me like two large wrens with right waistcoats they are water oozles she said the birds flew with rapid strokes of the wings like kingfishers or lighting constantly on the river a large mossy stones and though we saw them plunge into the river, it was not to swim, but to run along the bottom in search of worms. But do worms live underwater? The rooks were building, and a little while after a great scuffling was heard in one of the chimneys, and a young jackdaw came down and soon became tamer than any bird I had ever seen, tamer than a parrot at the end of May in the corn crake, called from the meadow that summer had come again, and the keen wandered in deeper and deeper and deeper herbage, and the day seemed to never end, and looking through the branches of the chestnut in which the fruit had not begun to show, we caught sight of a strange spectacle, Stella said a lunar rainbow, and I wondered, never having heard of seeing such a thing before, I shall never forget that rainbow, Stella, and I'm glad that we saw it together. In every love story... Lovers reprove each other for lack of affection, and Stella had often sent me angry letters which caused me many heart-bumping burnings, and brought me out to her. In the garden there were reconciliations. We picked up the thread again, and the summer had passed before the reason of these quarrels became clear to me. One September evening, Stella said she would accompany me to the gate, and when we had gone very far, I began to notice that she was quarrelling with me. She spoke of the loneliness of the moat house, and I answered that she had not been alone two evenings that week. She admitted my devotion, and if you admit that that there has been no neglect, she would not tell me, but there was something she was not satisfied with, and before we reached the end of the evening, she said, I don't think I can tell you. But on being pressed, she said, Well, you don't make love to me often enough, and full of apologies, I answered, Let me go back. No, I can't have... 
you go back now, not after having spoken like that, but she yielded to my invitation and we returned to the house and next morning I went back to Dublin to a little dazed, a little shaken. After a few days, she went away to Italy to spend the winter and wrote me long letters interesting me in herself in the villages, in the walks and things that she saw in her walks, setting me sight, me sighing that she was away from me or that I was not with her and going to the window I could stand for a long time watching the Hawthorns in their bleak wintry discontent, thinking how the sunlight fell into the Italian gardens and caught the corner of the ruin she was sketching, and I let my fancy stray for a time unchecked. It would be wonderful to be in Italy with her, but I turned from the window suspicious, for there was a feeling at the back of my mind that with her return an anxiety would come into my life that I would willingly be without. She had told me she had refrained from a lover because she wished to keep all herself from her painting, and now she had taken herself as a lover. She was twenty years younger than I was, and at forty-six or thereabouts, one begins to feel that one's time for love is over. One is consultant rather than practitioner, but it was impossible to dismiss the subject without a jest, and I found myself face to face with the question, if these twenty years were removed... Would things be different? It seemed to me that the difficulty that had arisen would have been the same earlier in my life as it was now, and returning to the window, I watched the hawthorns blowing under the cold grey Dublin sky. The problem is set. I said for the married and even a couple of solvent another way, but they were solvent. They had come to terms with love, especially the man who had the question of life and death, but how did they come to the terms? And I thought of the different married people in which I knew and were the likely little advisor of the man or the woman that was going to seek advice. Every case is different. I said, if anybody were to advise me, it would be the man, for the problem is not so difficult for a woman, and so she's kept to the love of the more easily the love of her husband. She can plead, and her many pleadings were considered, but one by one, and how the married life and solution it seemed to love was difficult to solve by marriage itself and by promise propinquity. But not less, not always, the question is one extraordinary interest in how importance. When marriage comes to shipwreck, I am convinced on this very question. In the divorce case published, we read incompatibly of temper and the lack of mutual taste, more euphemisms than deceiving. The image of the shipwreck rose upon me naturally. She will return like a ship of our love, and we are beaten on the rocks and broken. We shall be able to get out to sea. She will return, and when she returns, her <coughs> temperament will have to be adjusted to mine. She, she will lose altogether. The men have died in love of Shakespeare, and she always the man and the boy both died in love. Or some, somewhat absurd spectacle of lover waiting for his mistress to return, and yet dreading their returning was constantly before me, it seemed. Often to me that it was my own weakness that created an embarrassment. A stronger man would have been able to find a way out, but I am unable to shape and mould another according to my desire. And when she returned from Italy, I found myself more hopeless than ever. And I remember with the shame how to avoid being her being alone. I would run down the entire length of the train, avoiding the empty carriages, trying not here, not there. At last, opening the door, and they occupied only three or four people and looked at it if they were bound for the long journey. I remember how, about this time, I came to friends and Stella without an accident and design. Frankly, I don't know. I only know that I brought many friends to you, thinking that they would interest her. If you don't care to come to me, see me without a chaperone, I would rather you didn't come at all, she said, emailing me very deeply. It seemed to me. I answered, blushing, that you would like to see Dash, and I mentioned the name of the man who had accompanied me, and if I came across, sometimes it's because I don't see enough of you. If it seems to me that if it was even the resolve hardened, it would harden, because her friend it would be allowed me to become her friend, but if words should I for a frame or request my apology all the time, it would have become a less memorable until I even nipped a quarrel in the beginning, stop suddenly at the end of the revenue, and it was better than we should have understood each other. The plain truth is that I can cease to be your lover unless my life is sacrificed, cease to be my lover. That is impossible. 
But a change comes into every love story. The explanation started on, I remember her saying, I don't not wish to sacrifice your life. I have forgotten the end of her sentence. She drew her hand suddenly across her eyes. I will conquer this obsession. A man would have whined and cried and besought and worried his mistress out of her wits. Women behave better than we. Only once did her feelings overcome her. She spoke to me of a deception that life is... Again, we were standing at the gate at the end of the Chestnut Avenue, and I remember her telling me how a few years ago life had become so seemed to hold out its hands to her, and her painting and her youth created her enjoyment, but now life seems to have shriveled up, she said, and only a little dust is left, nothing has changed so far as you and I are concerned, we must see each other just the same. I am no more to you than any other woman. She went away again to Italy to paint her and returned to Ireland, and one day she came to see me and remained talking for an hour. I have no memory of what we said to each other, but a very clear memory of our walk through Dublin over Carlisle Bridge and along the quays. I had accompanied her as far as Phoenix Park and at the corner of the Conningham Robe just as I was bidding her goodbye. She said, I want to ask your advice on a matter of importance to me and to me for what is important to you is equally important to me. I am thinking, she said, of being married. At the news, it seems to me that I was unduly elated and tried to assume the interest that a friend should. End of chapter. Wow. Friend zoned yourself boring that was atrocious this book is like i think george is the kind of person who said he was like hey dude i want to tell you something and if you said hey george if you tell me this i'll i'll die don't ask me how don't ask me how but like this is crazy i just happen to know for a fact that if you tell me this thing you're about to tell me i'll i will die George would say, I don't care, and he would tell you anyway, because he just does not give a shit about you. He just wants to say things, and he does not give a shit about you. He would say this stuff to you, even if he knew it meant you would then die, because all he cares about is saying shit, and he does not care about you, live or die. He would rather say something boring and you die than not say the boring thing. That's George Moore. Cheers, everyone. See you tomorrow.